A date which will live in infamy. Both of those projects, initiatives, got off the ground because of the Gare out of the 24 who were killed were Americans who had come to learn in Kevin. I say one million Jewish children who were made to be cut in Whoever heard such beautiful words, It is never too little, it is never too late, and it is never enough. Jewish History Soundbites, bringing alive the world of our glorious past. Here is our host, live from Jerusalem, Jewish historian and tour guide, Yehuda Geberer. Welcome, everyone, to another episode of Jewish History Soundbites, not just another episode. This is Yehuda Geber with the next installment of our ongoing series of the Rabbis and the Zionists. This is part four, and we're going to go move into, into high gear today, um, to really the next stage. Um, we're going to try to bring a lot of things together that... Uh, discussed in the first three parts of this um, really great series that uh, you know, I'm enjoying it, and I hope all of you are as well. Uh, before, before I start, I just want to read you some mail, just one letter this time, and the only reason I'm going to bother you with this one letter is because it's kind of related to the series. I gave uh, an episode uh, about a week ago or so on Rav Cook. Part two, uh, part one was way back. Part two is last week for his yard site. And I got this, the following letter from an amazing listener of Jewish History Soundbites. Not only does he listen and enjoy, which is already great, but he his feedback is, is amazing. He always sends some fantastic letters. I've read you a couple already, and I probably will read you more in the future. So here it goes. I quote, I'm not sure if you're familiar with Rabnutta Greenblatt. If you can, you should interview him. He doesn't forget a thing. He's one of the most fascinating personalities I've ever met. He's Reb Ephraim Greenblatt's uncle of the Chuvis Rivervice Ephraim fame. He grew up in Yerushalayim. He's probably almost 95 by now, with an incredible memory and young like a 70-year-old, he did most of the gittin in the South and Midwest. Whenever he would come by over where I live, he would regale us with stories of old Yerushalayim and later in America, learning by Rav Maisha. With regard to Rav Cook, Rav Nata told us how the boys would peek through the keyhole in his door and to watch him learn at all hours of the day and how everyone respected him as an incredible Talmud Chacham. We asked him about the secret to his longevity, so he told us the story. He said he was a sickly boy growing up in Yerushalayim. His father was close to Rav Kook, 
and took him to get a bracha from the Rav. He said Rav Kook put him on his lap and gave him a bracha for health and arichas yamin. If you got a bracha from Rav Kook, you wouldn't take medicine or go to doctors either. He says he never even takes an Advil. This is the end of that letter, which uh, it's it's great. Um Zulzayin Stark is an amazing person. I've met him a couple of times, and uh, and this is a great letter, a great story. I didn't know that he had an interaction with Rav Kook um, as a young child in Yerushalayim. And uh, based on Rav Kook's bracha, it seems that Rav Nata Grimlag does not even take an Advil. Well, you know, I didn't get a bracha from Rav Kook, so I take Advil from time to time, and I also go to doctors, but I'm just a regular guy. In any event, so this kind of brings us back to um, to uh, where we were holding. We are in the interwar period, kind of wrapping things up. And I mentioned at the beginning of last the last part, part three, that in the beginning of the in the beginning of the talk, I mentioned that I hope we don't get confused by all the opinions going on in the Jewish world, in the Jewish rabbinic world, in the interwar period, when it's a very, very exciting and busy period in Jewish history. And in the end, I myself got confused. So I just want to make a, a bit of a summary before we move over to, um, to the, after the interwar, to the Holocaust and to the post-war. Um, the, a, a large uh, political party in Poland and really worldwide that features rabbinic opinion at the time in the interwar period, to a certain extent till today, is the Agudas Yisrael. One of the issues that the Agudas Yisrael had in the interwar period is that there were many great rabbinic leaders who did not join. That was the first issue. And when it was founded, it wanted to be and it even claimed to be the voice of of Orthodox uh, Torah, true Jewry across Europe, and many rabbis did not join. So that became a major issue for the Aguda. Why didn't a lot of rabbis join? So some, well, I guess, we'll just to use modern political terms, even though it's a bit unfair to say this when talking about great rabbis and about a serious issue such as Zionism. But uh, some were to the right and some were to the left. The ones that were to the left, some of them, many of them, were part of the Mizrahi. We mentioned that last, last part, last, uh, last episode in this, in this series. And even many who did not formally join the Mizrahi, but many of them were supportive enough of Zionism that they did not feel that the Agudas Yisrael would be there home because of Agudas Yisrael's official anti-Zionist stance, which became the mainstream opinion. And they, many of them did not feel that they wanted to subscribe to that opinion, and they did support Zionism. Many, many Litvisha, Lithuanian Rabbanim, were, were, were like that. They didn't formally join the Mizrahi, but they're very supportive of Zionism, and as a result, they did not join the Agudas Yisrael, in a, uh, in a formal way. I think I might have mentioned that the Arsameach possibly was like that. Um, other, other great rabbis of the time. And, um, and then you have people to the left, to, excuse me, to the right. And those are mainly in Hungary. Many, most, many, if not most, Hungarian rabbanim did not join the Goddess Yisrael. 
not exactly because of Zionism, but because of certain independence that they wanted Hungarian Rabbanim to have, and it has its, its, its major issues of the Orthodox Jewish communities in Hungary from the time of the Chassam Seifer, which I don't want to get into now, because one day when we do a history of Hungarian Jewry, we'll talk about how the uh, Jewish communities in Hungary developed, which is a fascinating story, being that it's a recent history. Jewish history in Hungary is not that ancient. It's uh, pretty new on the scene, and it developed in two different ways. It developed from in Oberland, in the area of immigrants from Germany to northwestern Hungary from the Chassam Seifer, and at the same time it developed in Unterland um, from Galicia and Ukraine Hasidim into southeast Hungary, and then they mixed together in a, in a very interesting way. And the whole story of how the Orthodox communities um, in their long uh, uh, battle against the Neolog and the other secularist or progressive elements, rather, in, um, in Hungarian society. And it, it, without getting too, too into that, it, it caused many of the Hungarian rabbis to be wary of an international Orthodox Jewish organization, and they did not formally join. But in addition to that, they felt that the Agudas Yisrael was too soft on Zionism. And uh, they couldn't join the movement because they weren't extreme enough against Zionism. And that was definitely the position of the Minchas Elazar of Munkach, Rebchaim uh, uh, Shapiro, and the Satmarov, famously, even before the war, his post-war fame was based on positions that he held uh, very strongly even in the pre-war era, and many, many, many other Hungarian rabbis. Um, this is also not only in Hungary, in Galicia. I think I mentioned last time uh, the, the Belzer Rebbe, the Rebbe Rabbi Sachar Doiv, and the Gdushas Sin of Babav, and other Tzan's uh, descendants in Galicia also didn't formally join the Gdushas Israel for the very same reason. Um, they were more extreme, not only about Zionism, but in many, many areas, and joining with an international organization with Jews from all over, Orthodox Jews from Germany and from other places, this would compromise um, their lifestyle. They felt it would compromise their community's lifestyle or value system or, or certain positions that they wanted to be more uh, clannish or more extreme about. And that is, that is a, a major issue for the Gurus Yisrael because if they're claiming to be the mainstream voice of Orthodox Judaism, and here there's a very large amount of rabbis who did not join. The next issue with the Agudas Yisrael is that they, in regards to Zionism, obviously, I'm not giving a history of Agudas Yisrael, I'm giving a, a on rabbinic positions on Zionism. So as far as Zionism is concerned, the next uh, issue that Agudas Yisrael had is that they never formed a coherent platform. They never had an official position. There was an old saying that was said half in jest, and, uh, and I only mean it in jest, I don't mean any, anything more, I'm not coming to, uh, to put it down, but there was an old saying that the Agudas Yisrael's position was always to wait for what the Mizrahi would say, and then go against it. In other words, they never had a proactive position uh, as far as Zionism was concerned, they were responding, they were not initiating. And part of the reason for that was the fact that within the Agudas Yisrael, this is something we went into pretty much a, a, a fair amount of depth last time, within the Agudas Yisrael itself, 
there was a fair amount of diversity. You had extremists in the Agudis Yisrael, people like Rabbi Khan and Wasserman. You had moderates in the Agudis Yisrael who were borderline Zionists, the chart cover Rebbe and the Bayana Rebbe, um, who were leaders in Agudis Yisrael, especially in Galicia. And then you had all the the people who ran the Agudah were the were the Polish Rebbe's, the Sachachava Rebbe, the Ger Rebbe mainly, and they were pretty moderate, but um, but they had their opposition, they had their issues, and 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 therefore it was hard to get a a clear position of the Aguda of the Mayetzis Gedele Hatoira of the Aguda as what is their position on Zionism. Another issue was is that the Ger Rebbe and other people like him, they were much more pragmatic and dealing with the issues at hand that Jew, Polish Jewry was facing in Poland at the time. Life in Poland in the interwar period was not simple at all. Um, there was anti-Semitism, there was economic boy, boycott, there was um, economic downturns, there was changing times, there was secularization, there was a lot of politics, there was a lot of educational needs, and the Ger Rebbe, who was a great, great leader, and his focus all the time was dealing with the issues of the day-to-day life of the people, of his flock, of his the people he was leading. And he was much more busy dealing with uh, Yiddishkeit and day-to-day issues in Poland, building Beis Yaakov, for instance. Um, his, he made the Agudis Yisrael adopt the Beis Yaakov. By the way, in secular Zionism, the same debate was going on. How much are we focusing on what then seemed like a pipe dream, a vision, uh, a nice idea? How much do we focus on that, on Zionism, on building a Jewish state in far-off Palestine, which we can't even get to, and for most people is not practical? And, and how much do we focus on that? Or how much do we focus on what people are facing in day-to-day life in Poland, in other places in Eastern Europe? And there was, there was a lot of splits in the Zionist movement, and, and there was... About 65, you know, I'm exaggerating obviously, but many, many political parties that espoused Zionism within Poland and other Eastern European countries during the interwar period that had different positions on how the Zionist enterprise should be built. How much should we focus on? And, and people from the Pyaletsiain, the, uh, the, uh, the workers representing the workers' movements, they said, you can't really uh, uh, be such a visionary and idealist and tell everyone to move to Eretz Yisrael if, if, if your average uh, person in Poland is, is, is worried about losing his job in a factory and trying to put bread on the table. Let's first deal with some issues at hand and give them some hope and then give them a future and then they can develop a vision and idealism. And that when the Shomer Hatzair, for instance, the young youth movement of the labor Zionists, they said, no, uh, forget about everything in the exile and just negate everything and just dream of getting there and hopefully you'll get there and try to get to Israel, try to get to Palestine. So you see that it wasn't just an issue within the religious camp, but this was the very same issue was being debated in the secular Zionist movement as well. So against that backdrop, you know, the the, the the there there's against that backdrop there's all the ideological positions and what are the ideological positions so the there are those like I said last week who who believed that it was fundamentally wrong the 
to force the Geula, to force your way out of the Golas, the Sholesh voice, which is the position of many Hungarian rabbis, is the position we said again last week. I'm just summarizing of the Lubavitcher Rebbe, the Rashab before World War One, and um, and others. Shamshanafol Hirsch mentioned that in the previous century, I mentioned that way earlier, two two episodes ago. And then there's the positions of the mainstream Polish Rebbes that they're for Aliyah, they're for moving to Yisrael, go for it. They don't like the secular nature of the Zionist movement, and they're not excited about the Mizrahi who are actually cooperating with the secularists. But on the other hand, people like the Sachet Shavar Rebbe, the Shemi Shmuel, who, who support, very much supported uh, Aliyah and supported, to a certain extent, moving to Eretz Yisrael and the idea of building up Eretz Yisrael. He had a brother who actually, he had a son, excuse me, who moved there. So the Sachet dynasty was somewhat saved. The Sachet Rebbe, the Shemi Shmuel, had, I think, 21 children. A very interesting family. It's a story in itself. But, um, but, he, he did not like the secularism. He didn't feel that it was right that the Zionist movement was anti-Yiddishkeit. But he said, like the Ger Rebbe, the Ger Rebbe, the Mariamis also said, the more we send people who are Hasidim there, the more we send and build yeshivas and build uh, institutions of Yiddishkeit, which was somewhat the theory of Ramesh Mordechai Epstein when he brought the Slabatki yeshiva there in 1924. Let's build a yeshiva. If they're building Eretz Yisrael, with kibbutzim, then we can build it with a yeshiva, and we'll strengthen Yiddishkeit in the rebuilding of Eretz Yisrael. That was definitely a position. So it's an opposition to Zionism, it's an opposition to cooperation with the Zionist movement, it's against the official Mizrahi position, but it's definitely not as extreme, and it's definitely not as a, in a theological approach as some of the others. In addition, there was another form of opposition, which was that um, that uh, which was similar to the to the problem of it uh, of it being secularist in nature was the fact that that you're you're building a state on on secular ideals. It's it's not it's 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 it becomes fundamental. It's like a sort of like a synthesis of both. Um, it's a it's a it's that it's it's fundamentally wrong. To go to Eretz Yisrael, to come back to Eretz Yisrael and use it as a secular uh, base, um, which was also a position that some people held. Now, now um, that's all in Europe. In Eretz Yisrael, there's a big dispute going on during the 1920s and 30s. Famously in Yerushalayim, the two main uh, characters in this dispute is Rav Kook and Rav Zonenfeld. Uh, Rav Kook was the chief rabbi of Yerushalayim and Rav Zonenfeld who opposed his support of Zionism and his cooperation with the secularists. He, he, um, he goes ahead and separates from the mainstream community of the Jewish community of Yerushalayim and creates his own Jewish community. And the model for that was obviously Hungarian Jewry where Rav Zonenfeld had grown up in. But the Chassam Seifer was the pioneer of that. And then later of Shamshun Rafal Hirsch in Germany, that when you don't believe that the Jewish community is on solid footing, then you can separate and form your own Jewish kehila. And he forms the Eid Hacharedis. And there's a bitter opposition uh, 
a bit, very, very, uh, not, not, not clean, not, uh, it was a very bitter dispute. And, um, how much cooperation should there be? Reb Chaim Zanafeld was a bitter opponent of Zionism. He definitely took the most extreme position in the Agudas Yisrael, which the Eid Haredes was part of until the founding of the state. And he, um, and he opposed the position of Rav Kook. And then he had his supporters. Now this is based on an old machlekes in, in Yerushalayim, predating, the, predating Zionism. In the old days of Yerushalayim, Rabbi Shmuel Salant was the rabbi, the Avbezdin, and the old Yerushalayim. And the and there was a new immigrant to Yerushalayim, Rabbi Shuleib Diskin, who was the Rav in Brisk. And Rabbi Shuleib Diskin was an extremist as far when, as far as any modernization of Yerushalayim, opening a school that had secular studies, learning other languages, um, uh, all sorts of things. The early Zionism, support of Hebrew language, and stuff like that. Rabbi Shuleib Diskin was a an extremist. And Rabbi Shmuel Salant was the mainstream. He was the mainstream Yerushalmi community at the time. He was the official rabbi of Yerushalayim. So it's kind of a continuation of the previous generation dispute brought into the context of modern political Zionism. And with all this going on, with none of this cleared up, and all these different rabbinical positions happening and being articulated and explained and trying to be justified and gain new adherence, when something comes from the outside and changes everything, and that is the Holocaust. The Holocaust comes, and no one's ready for it, and after the war, uh, fingers would be pointed and be blamed, and uh, a frequent question I get was, is, is for many groups, and I go on tours, and we start speaking about the Holocaust, and I bring the groups, and we go to the camps, and we confront Places like Auschwitz, like Majdanek and Treblinka, and you see the horror, you see the loss, and you see the tragedy that befell our people. And then people, and then very often participants on the trips, uh, it, it sort of like begs the question: Why didn't? Why weren't people weren't? Why weren't they encouraged to immigrate to go to Eretz Yisrael before the war? If they hadn't been such opponents of Zionism, then perhaps more would have been saved. And, um, I mean, there's a lot to say about it, and really I should devote an entire podcast to this question, because, first of all, I get, I get, a lot, I get the question a lot on trips, and I get it in, in general, and also because it's an important question, and it has to be seen in the right historical context. And most people answer that question from an ideological point of view, and it's important to answer the question from a factual point of view, from just seeing the world as it was at the time. And the basic answer is that no one saw what was coming. Um, if rabbis had known the Holocaust was coming, then one person they might have told about it would have been Hitler, because Hitler didn't know that the Holocaust was coming either. And that's the biggest surprise of all, is that it would have been impossible to see the Holocaust coming, because the Nazis themselves did not know that it was coming. And it's something that developed, the final solution, as an implemented systematic extermination of the Jewish people was something that developed throughout the years of the war until it finally was crystallized in a, an official decision by the Nazi leadership at the end of 1941, which is definitely an off-topic and a story in itself. But 
no one was able to be able to predict the annihilation and the extermination of European Jewry. And therefore to say that they should have encouraged more, maybe they should have encouraged more immigration anyway, but that's irrelevant. But to say that they should have saved them from Auschwitz by encouraging more pre-war immigration in the, in the interwar period is, 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 is just um, not recognizing the reality of, uh, of, uh, of the time. So the Holocaust comes, and there's a complete decimation of Jewish-European life. Six million Jews are killed, and the remnants, refugees, survivors, traumatized. And now what? And the Holocaust, what it does to rabbinical positions in Zionism is very interesting. For many rabbis, their positions remain the same. For some, they're even reinforced. Uh, for many Zionist rabbis, Mizrahi rabbis, followers of Rav Kook or the Mizrahi, or other Zionistically inclined rabbis, they said, look, the Holocaust proved that we need a solution to the Jewish problem, which is what many secular Zionists said as well. And we need a state. And therefore... And it's also the Messianic Zionists, the ones, the especially followers of Rav Kook, they said, oh, you see, that's the Hevle Moshiach, and you see what a destruction it was, so we need a rebirth, we need a national rebirth. What can help that is, for Jewish identity at this point, is nationalism, and, um, and, um, and um, which, which, uh, which had been a point of contention before the war. In the pre-war era, Part of the issue that people had, that many rabbinical figures had with Zionism, was what is the Jewish people's identity? Is the Jewish people's identity a Torah identity? They're a people, based on Reb Sadiagain, what he wrote many years earlier, is that the Torah gives the Jewish people their identity and nothing else, whereas the nations of the world have other identities, cultural identity, language, and nationalism in the modern era, nationalism becomes the main identity, the nation, comprised of all its components. And and the other and the the and nationalism, the, the claim was has nothing to do with Judaism. The Jewish people aren't nationalists. The Jewish people aren't about territory. They aren't about being a nation. The reason that they're a nation is because of the Torah, not because of nationalism. While others said, well, in the modern era, nationalism has become of utmost importance for national identity. So there's no reason why the Jews should be any different. And, the, and nationalism can be a healthy development of national identity in the Jewish people as well. Rav Kook was a big supporter of nationalism. And other rabbis were as well. There's nothing wrong with having a national identity, and therefore nationalism is not always a negative point of view. That was another point of contention as to the opposition or support of, of, uh, of Zionism. And, um, and the, um, so, so, so they, so many, many continued in their support and actually the Holocaust reinforced that view. Others, on the other side of the spectrum, such as the Satmarov, which is a story, you know, we'll have to get there in a future episode. He's a major player in the post-war era. The Holocaust also reinforced his position. He's able to survive. He escapes in a very, interesting story, and he escapes from Hungary, 
on the Kastner train, which was actually organized by the Zionists, but that's a story in itself, and I don't want to get into that now. Maybe perhaps for another opportunity on the Kastner train and the Satmarov's uh, participation in the Kastner train. And he survives the war, gets to Switzerland, Arts Yisrael, and eventually to the United States. And he says, the Holocaust reinforced my pre-war position. Uh, my opposition to Zionism is as strong as ever. Because uh, the reason that the Holocaust happened is because of secularization in general, which he was not the only rabbi who said that. Many other rabbis said that. Um, uh, which is also a topic in itself. And, and specifically because of the Zionists, because they tried forcing their way out of the Gauls. Because they, they violated the three Shavuos. So therefore, the punishment for violating the three Shavuos is pretty explicit in the Pasuk and in the Gemara over there in Ksubis. That what's going to happen is, is that you're going to get destroyed. You're going to get wiped out. And that's exactly what happened. So, so, so this reinforces my position, reinforces my position against Zionism, and that, and there were followers of other Rabbanim who went with the Satmarov's position as well. There was a third category of rabbis who, probably because my, you know, it's, it's this conjecture, 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 okay, someone will correct me on that, um, but, uh, but it's, it, there was a lot of silence from a lot, a lot of rabbis after the war, and it's possibly because of the trauma. And it's hard to articulate an opinion on anything, especially something as weighty as Zionism, in light of what just happened. It, it takes time. It takes time to absorb, and it takes time to get over what happened, and the personal loss, the national loss, to be able to formulate positions, and to be able to reflect, and to, and to, and to decide on those positions. Now, they didn't have a lot of time. Why? Because three years later, an even bigger development in the Zionist movement happened, which was the founding of the State of Israel. And so any reflection on the Holocaust would already be colored by the later development of the actual founding of the state. Now it's not just the Zionist idea, but it's an actual reality on the ground. So there's a lot of silence. There's a lot of quiet from rabbinical positions in the immediate years after the war about Zionism, probably because of the trauma. But the fourth uh, rabbinical position as a result of the Holocaust is probably the most interesting. The fourth position is of people who changed their pre-war view as a result of the Holocaust. And there's a few great examples of that. And um, for best example, and it's quite a famous example, was the famous Hungarian Rav, Rabbi Sacher Shleim Teichtal. Rabbi Sacher Shleim Teichtal was a... a graduate of the Preshburg Yeshiva, so he was firmly entrenched in the Hungarian-Jewish world. Um, in Hungary, he was quite famous. Outside of Hungary, his fame didn't quite reach until after the war. Um, and, he, and he kind of went along with the mainstream Hungarian rabbinate um, in opposition to Zionism. He wasn't a outspoken critic. He wasn't a... a uh, um, someone who wrote or, or ra- railed against Zionism. It definitely wasn't someone like the Mincha Salazar of Munkach or someone like that. But he definitely was not a supporter of Zionism and he seemed to be going along with the mainstream Hungarian rabbinical position of anti-Zionism 
um, that existed in that rabbinical uh, world in the pre-war. And what happens is the Holocaust. He himself experiences it, and the redrawn borders. He's in Slovakia at the beginning of the war when the deportations from Slovakia to Auschwitz begins. He runs away. He escapes uh, from Slovakia to Hungary. Um, and he, in Hungary, he rethinks his position. And he decides that to be anti-Zionism was wrong. And perhaps that's even why the Holocaust happened, because we didn't support Aliyah, we didn't support Zionism enough. And he literally makes a 180-degree turn, um, or 90-degree turn, I'm not so good at, at math. And he, and, he, uh, and he completely changes his position to be in support of Zionism, publishes a famous safer in Hungary during the war, uh, called Ema Banim Semecha. When Hungary is invaded by the Nazis, he escapes and returns to Slovakia. And in Slovakia, he's caught towards the end of the war, and he's killed by the Nazis. Unclear exactly where, but he's killed. And he that that adds to his you know his uh, his moral credibility. The same way that um, Rebel Chonon Wasserman's moral credibility is. Enhanced by the fact that he was a martyr, he died al Kiddush Hashem, returning to his people, to his yeshiva, on the eve of the war. So the same could be said about, about many people, about their moral, uh, it enhanced their moral position by the fact that they became a martyr, that they were killed. And he, his position was of someone who saw it, who experienced it, and went through this transformation, through this change. Uh, another person like that was Rav Salvechik. Rav Soloveitchik, also, he wasn't a major opponent of Zionism. He wasn't a Kanoi, he wasn't a zealot. His father, Rav Soloveitchik, definitely had uh, close connections with the Mizrahi when he lived in Warsaw. He was in Tach Kamoini, which had affiliations with the Mizrahi um, when he was in Warsaw. Um, but he definitely, Rav Soloveitchik, um, was not a major supporter of Zionism before the war. He definitely had a, a certain affiliation with Agudas Yisrael beforehand. He definitely had the general Soloveitchik family connections, which were never great supporters of Zionism in the pre-war era. And one could never call him a major supporter. How much he opposed it is up for debate, like almost everything of his positions. And But he definitely changed because of the war. Now, again, I don't want to go into exactly what his position is because that's dangerous territory. There are so many people out there who debate what Rav Soloveitchik's position was on pretty much anything. So I, anything I'll ever say, I'll just get in trouble. So the less I say, the less I'll get in trouble. But he definitely changed his position. And I want to just use him as an example for others who changed their position, but because there's going to be a new form of Zionism that's really formed after the Holocaust. And that's experienced by many survivors, and also by rabbinical leaders like Rav Soloveitchik, like others. and I nicknamed it Holocaust Zionism, meaning it's not Messianic Zionism of Rav Kook, it's not because of Aschalta de Geula, it's not because of Herzl's vision, or the or even the Mizrahi, although it is in certain ways similar to Rav Reines' original position in the Mizrahi, it's a more practical Zionism, it's a more pragmatic position. That now that we see the decimation of the Holocaust, the only thing that could bring us back together as a nation, the only thing that could get us past this trauma, 
The only thing that could reawaken us and give us some hope for a better future is creating a Jewish state, is giving nationalism a chance, is giving a form of nationalism as to form part of Jewish identity from now on, and that could give new strength to the Jewish people after the incredible trauma that they have suffered. That's Holocaust Zionism in a nutshell. The reason it's a little bit similar to Rav Reines, Rabbi Tzachak of Reines, um, who founded the Mizrahi, is because Rav Reines also was a practical Zionism and not really messianic. I think I mentioned it in an earlier episode. And, uh, and he said that we have to get out of the Russian czarist pogroms. And if Eretz Yisrael is a solution, let's go to Eretz Yisrael. That's basically what Rav Reines' position was. It was to help the Jewish people. And because these people cared and were leaders and they loved the Jewish people and they looked for anything that could lift them up and to bring them to a, a better position, a better state. And therefore the Holocaust, which was such a terrible calamity, such a national uh, destruction and, and trauma, they felt that, that, that a Jewish state, that supporting the Zionist enterprise and and, and, and building a Jewish state, even if it's, sec- even if it's the secularists, and even if it's the, it has a lot of things that aren't ideal about it, but it has to be supported because we just went through something so terrible that we need a rejuvenation in the form of a Jewish state. A very, very, uh, another interesting example, which is very different than the ones I just mentioned, of someone who moderated his position as a result of the Holocaust is someone like the Belzerebbe. The Belzerebbe did not become a Zionist. Rebaran of Belz also managed to survive the war and eventually get out, which we devoted a podcast once uh, a few months ago to. And, uh, and the Belzerebbe definitely, like I said, he doesn't become a Zionist. He doesn't join the Mizrahi. He, he, but he does moderate his position. His father, the Rebbe Rabbi Sacher Daif, had been one of the preeminent uh, um, extreme anti-Zionists before the war. The Satmarov said he learned, and his mentor in anti-Zionism in his extreme positions was the Rebbe Rabbi Sacher Daif of Bells. And, and, uh, and Rabbi Aaron of Bells, when he came to Eretz Yisrael at the end of the war, after having lost his entire family, his community, his Hasidim, and pretty much everything he had, he arrives in Eretz Yisrael, and of course he, he says one little sentence, and of course that's been a, it sparked a debate for the last 70 some odd years or so. What did he say? What did he mean? And he said something along the lines of, here in Eretz Yisrael, it's, it's not as bad as, as we've been saying it is, something like that. In other words, uh, what they were saying back home in Galicia was that the Zionists don't allow you to live a Jewish lifestyle. They're um, completely destroying Yiddishkeit there, and, and, and it's impossible to sustain a Jewish life there. They're so, uh, violently anti-religious that, that, uh, that it's unsustainable. And he said, it's not as bad as we thought. Uh, it's, it seems that it's possible to be able to, at least potential to build a religious Jewish life, which history has borne out that he was correct, especially as far as Bells is concerned. It definitely is possible to live a religious life even with the Zionists in Israel. That was number one, that he moderated his position. And number two, he went ahead and did a heretical act in the eyes of many Belzers and the eyes of the Satmarov and others. He joined the Agudas Yisro. Um, and uh, I'm not sure at which point. 
I should have just looked this up. I don't remember if he himself joined or was only joined after he died. But Bells, as a collective, eventually uh, joined Agudas Yisrael formally. Uh, he definitely supported the position. I don't know if it was formally done in his lifetime. Uh, check that out. Um, but Bells eventually joined and he uh, moderated his position in his opposition to Agudas Yisrael, that's for sure. And therefore, cooperation with the Zionists and the Zionist movement as Agudas Yisrael was able to do for pragmatic purposes, um, was supported by the Belzer Rebbe. So this was very, very different than what Belz was before the war. And uh, that was continued by his nephew, and that seems to be the position of Belz till today. Much more moderate in their opposition, and uh, part of Agudas Yisrael um, in, the, in the political sphere. So that's another example of Holocaust Zionism, or le- less opposition to Zionism. And that's the results of the, of the Holocaust. The next and final stage um, that, of this episode is the whole, all the rules of the game change. Um, what happens is, in May of 1948, the State of Israel is declared. And now, the State of Israel is a reality. It's a state, they fight a war, they win the war to a certain extent, and they create a government. And now they're here. They, they, they're, they're reality. It's an undeniable reality. And they have, you know, they're collecting taxes. There's, you know, it's, just, it's there. It's, it's all, it's, it's, it exists. It's no longer the British mandate. And that, um, that, that all of a sudden was a new challenge to rabbinical positions across the spectrum, both for the supporters the middle grounders and the opponents and the extreme opponents. Um, the, the, because until now, for 60, 70, 80, 100 years, the idea of Eretz Yisrael, of moving there, of the nation, of nationalism, of Hebrew culture, of political Zionism, of Aliyah, all these things were in the realm of ideas. They were ideology, they're what should be the course of the Jewish people, they're what is the vision of the future for the Jewish people, and rabbinical positions were based on that. And a lot of it was theory, a lot of it they knew themselves was impractical, right? You know, the idea, again, we go back to what I said earlier about what did rabbis do to encourage their, their chassidim, their, their followers, their students, their, to, to, uh, to make aliyah in the interwar period. The question is irrelevant, because what did secular leaders do? No one could do anything, because the British decided who made Aliyah and who didn't, and they didn't allow almost anyone to. So the whole question is irrelevant, because it was decided by outside factors. And therefore, a lot of the ideological positions, right, the Agudas Yisrael, in the 1937 Knesia Gedoyla, the great gathering of Agudas Yisrael in Marienbad, in Czechoslovakia, the, the Agudas Yisrael rabbinical leadership voted on whether they support or go against the Peel Commission report for the British uh, Empire, the, the British Mandate, excuse me, uh, of Palestine. So the, their position about, about um, a partition plan, the original idea for a partition plan of an Arab state and a Jewish state in Palestine, right? I mean, and, and, and the delegates, the rabbis at the Aguda Knesset 
probably knew that their support or opposition had no meaning in the political sphere. In the spiritual sphere, it probably did, because they probably davened to Hashem to support their position. But I'm not getting involved in that. From a historical point of view, their position was meaningless. Not only that, but the Zionist movement's position was almost meaningless. The British didn't care that much what David Ben-Gurion thought. And they didn't care that much what Vladimir Jabotinsky thought. And they didn't really care that much, though it's hard to admit, what even what Chaim Weizmann thought. And, and the British really did what they wanted. And, 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 that, and, that was, and, that, and therefore, it, a lot of what the dispute was in the interwar period was very theoretical and very, you know, ideology, what should be our official position. But in practicality, it didn't make, it made a little bit of a difference, of course, and I'm, you know, exaggerating about, I'm sorry, I'm minimizing, um, um, maybe I'm minimizing it a bit, but it didn't make major ramifications. However, now that the state of Israel is founded, the whole game changes. Now it's real. Now you're dealing with the reality and your rabbinical position is going to be followed by real people living in a real state. And it's not an ideological position. And that's a new challenge. That's a new challenge for the even the supporters of Zionism. We supported the secular uh, Zionist movement with a lot of reservations. Now, do we just throw it our full support? Now it's a official secular state that doesn't believe in Shabbos and kosher food? Are we still supporting them? Are we still... What are they going to do about about uh, marriage and divorce? What are they going to do about all kinds of other Jewish and halachic issues? It's a Jewish state being founded for the first time since the second base of Mikdash. So it's a challenge for the rabbinical, uh, rabbinical leaders who were in support of Zionism until now. It becomes a challenge for the moderates, for the in-between, the people who who uh, had certain opposition, limited opposition, uh, because now do we have more opposition? Do we remain with our moderate opposition? Or do we learn how to work within the framework of the state? And it definitely poses a challenge for the major opposition, for the extreme opposition. And I want to bring it out in a different context. The Orthodox world is dealt a, a, a... devastating blow in the 1940s. The two two major occurrences that happened are the Holocaust and the founding of the State of Israel. And the ones who were in major opposition to Zionism, or even moderate, even Agudas Yisrael, who had some moderates within the Aguda, but the official position of the Aguda was very anti-Zionist. And here, they won. They have a state. What do we do now? And it becomes a major challenge. And this is on the heels of the greatest loss of the Holocaust, which everyone suffered together. But in a spiritual sense, the, the courts of the Hasidus and the yeshivas, the, the amount of rabbis and tzaddikim and, and leaders who were killed, wiped out, uprooted, even for the survivors. And right after the Holocaust, now there's a new challenge, a new challenge of the reality of the state of Israel. So how do we do that? How do we work with that? The most extreme position was to deny, just to deny the reality. Uh, many, to not recognize the state, to, uh, 
to not work with the state, uh, it became the position to a certain extent of the Aida Haredis in the early years before it became untenable, um, the Nature Karta, and these people had rabbinical leaders at that time who supported that position. Um, Rabbi Yosef Tzvi Dushinsky was the head of the Aida Haredis. He, in his last couple of years, he went through a major turmoil. He had been an Agudist, a member of Agudist Yisrael, and then in his last his last, uh, he died during the War of Independence. Uh, in his last months, last years, year or two, last months, he took the Eid Haredis out of the Aguda because the Aguda was was compromising, right? It's Shemai 11, the son-in-law of the Ger Rebbe, signed on the Declaration of Independence. Gerachos, the son-in-law of the Ger Rebbe, representing Agudas Yisrael, signed the Israel Declaration of Independence. That was a major statement because what the official position of the Agudas Yisrael became of the Ger Rebbe, of Reb Zalman Saratsky, and of Reb Zalman Meltzer, the leaders of the, the rabbinical leaders of Agudas Yisrael in Eretz Yisrael in the post-war era, was to recognize the state of Israel, to work within the framework of the state, and to still oppose it as we don't believe that this is the right thing to do, we don't believe in the secular leadership, we don't believe that this is the ideal way for the Jewish people to be. But once it's here, we got to work with it somehow. And we'll take it from here, from this point on, from the early years of the state, of how rabbinical leadership developed in the 1950s and 60s in our next episode. So this was Yehuda Geber with part four of the Rabbis and the Zionists. You can reach me at ygebss at gmail.com for questions, comments, sources, and of course trips and tours to see these places and hear about these people. You can subscribe now to Jewish History Soundbites on iTunes, Google Play, Spotify, Stitcher. Don't miss an episode. You can follow us on Twitter at JSoundbites, and I hope you enjoyed.